Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. If you were to ask me the most pressing issues designers are facing today, I would likely say that the questions we're facing revolve around questions of decolonization and decarbonization. How do designers enable systems of oppression in favor of the powerful? How are we working towards a more sustainable planet? How is our work a tool of liberation, of justice, of longevity? These two issues, decolonization and decarbonization, are not often talked about as something connected. We don't, or at least I didn't, fully understand how deeply they are related. If we live within a dominant worldview that favors extraction, extraction of labor, extraction of resources, extraction of human worth, then of course this would extend to the planet. To truly decarbonize, then, we first must decolonize. This is the nexus of the profound work and research of my guest today, Adrian Lahoud. Adrian is an architect, he's an urban designer, a researcher, and is the dean of the School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art. He was previously the director of the MA program at the Center for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths and a research fellow at Forensic Architecture. He was also the curator of the inaugural Sharjah Architecture Triennial in 2019, and all of his work revolves around these questions of decarbonization and decolonization. In this wide-ranging and, for me, very powerful conversation, Adrian and I talk about this relationship. We talk about architecture and design's role here and why we need to rethink what we mean when we say architecture. We also talk about what this looks like in practice for him as a dean of an architecture program. How does this influence how he runs a program and shapes a research culture? This is one of those conversations that I found myself reflecting back on often in the days after we recorded it, and I'm really, really excited to share it with you today. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, an exclusive monthly newsletter, all while helping to keep this show free for everyone all the time. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to get all the details and to sign up and support the show. Thank you as always for listening. And here's my conversation with Adrian Lahoud. I want to start this conversation, though. Um, I'm really interested in the way that you frame your own research. I've heard you talk many times about your research being about the, the intersection or the connection or the overlap between decarbonization and decolonization. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how those fit together or, or what it is about that intersection that you find so interesting. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I, I think in in the most simple terms, you, you can trace 
the situation that we're in with respect to climate change as the consequence of a kind of worldview. Mm. And that worldview has become dominant and effectively means that we've learned to see the things around us, the natural world, um, but also each other as resources, mm. um, things to be extracted, uh, things that we can apply various forms of calculations to in order to measure them, to financialize them, to commodify them and to make them circulate. And so, for example, um, you know, it would, it would be inconceivable if we wind the clock back um, uh, far enough to think about uh, owning a piece of land. Now it's a completely naturalized idea. Um, and that idea of property has expanded into things like intellectual property, um, but also, you know, um, things like carbon trading. So, for example, uh, you know, we have a, an atmospheric chemical um, that we can calculate. It's, you know, we can calculate its concentration. We can calculate how much uh, an area of forest absorbs, and we can use that to create a value. Um, which we can then monetize and trade and use to create things like carbon offsets. And so it's that, that extractive worldview that is, um, has become dominant. And so the connection and, and the, the way it's become dominant is through a colonial project. And colonial in many senses, not just the, um, the literal, physical, violent, uh, taking of land, but the transformation in people's um, psyche, in, in their um, um, mental uh, ecology, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in what they value, in what they understand, and what they count as relevant or irrelevant in the world, that, that has had to transform. So our, our minds and our souls have been colonized or have to be mm -hmm. colonized um, as part of the, the kind of the, the physical process of colonization. And the outcome of that is, 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 is the absolute dominance of this worldview. And so for me, that's really where this connection between these two things um, comes in. And in fact, I think it's impossible to separate one from the other. And of course, you know, I mean, there are so many historical examples, but of course, the, the, the one that's most often cited is, of course, the commodification of um, black bodies as part of the slave trade, right? As, as the kind of like, you know, in, in some sense, the beginning of that. I, I think this is so fascinating because, you know, when I first heard you talk about this, it was one of those, it was one of those moments where it's like, this is so obvious, and why have I not, <laughs> why have I not made this connection before? Yeah. You know, that, that this this idea that to to truly decarbonize, we have to first decolonize. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could, um, how, could you talk a little bit about how you came to this connection and how you started to see these as linked? Because like I said, you know, it was one of those, I felt so dumb <laughs> the first time I heard you say, it was like, it's so obvious, but I had never thought of it that way before. How did you start to arrive at this line of thinking? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, Trying to give you a, a kind of right concise <laughs> answer. Take your, take your time. Um, yeah. So my, my research work really starts off um, many, many years ago, looking at post-conflict situations in cities. I, my, my parents were 
born in Lebanon and emigrated to Australia, which is where I was um, studied. Um, and I returned back and I was really interested in the aftermath of a 15-year civil war there, mm. um, but also the, 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 the series of conflicts that had taken place after that. And I was trying to understand how does a society start to put itself back together after this conflict? Uh, what survives and, right. and what kinds of social practices um, do societies develop to make themselves resilient and able to withstand um, that, that kind of violence. And, and that expanded and I started to become interested in the way natural disasters did, did similar kinds of things. And I spent some time looking at, um, at New Orleans and Katrina as, as another example. Fast forward a little bit and uh, I started working on a, a doctoral dissertation at the University of Technology, Sydney with, with Andrew Benjamin. Um, looking at the idea of scale, and at the time I was running, so yeah, I, I was I was coordinating an urban design program at the time, and I was really struggling to think theoretically and systematically about how you teach urban design because cities are really big, complex things, yeah. and you could start almost anywhere, um, and 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 out of that emerged uh, a, a, a quite a long, significant piece of research into the idea of scale in architecture. And, you know, uh, what, I, what I discovered while I was doing this research working to scale is that uh, climate scientists were also grappling with another really big, complex thing made up of many parts operating at different temporal and spatial scales. And they were also working in similar kinds of ways to... Um, to, to what I was proposing within the thesis. And so I started to make this connection between what was happening in, um, in climate science at the time and then my own thinking about cities as, you know, how do you... And, and it was really, um, it was a response to a very practical problem, which is how do you teach really complex things to students? Yeah. Right? How do you break right. them up into parts? Yeah, yeah. Um, what is a kind of natural part? How do you reconnect those parts? How do you get students to be able to connect things that are happening at very small scales to things that are larger scales and more historical um, versus things that might be more, you know, ephemeral and temporary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so during that, during that research, um, one of the chapters in the PhD was focused on the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Conference. And at that mm. conference, yeah. there was a, you know, a very famous moment where um, the lead negotiator of the G77 at the time, Lumumba de Arping, uh, accused the uh, G8, actually, of trying to colonize the sky um, mm. because they had circulated a draft text, uh, effectively negotiating um, without the participation of the global south you know, and, and, and right. coming up with a deal that they thought they could just impose on the global south. And it was really one of, uh, for me, an incredibly... Um, important moment because it was the first time the global south these 132 developing nations arrived at the climate summit with a single negotiating position and they you know, re rejected this g8 deal and the talks collapsed um and and i think that was for me a moment in which it was made incredibly explicit that when we're arguing over something like 1.5 degree temperature increase or a 1.6 right. degree temperature increase. Actually, what we're really arguing about is a distribution of life and death. 
so so that's the moment where this where, where where this kind of connection between decarbonization and decolonization for me becomes really explicit and politically active so I have to, you started to answer my next question, and so I'm going to ask you this question in sort of two ways that are, <laughs> this might be the same question, or I might be asking you sort of two questions that are related. Um, but I'm interested in sort of how architecture overlaps then with these questions of decolonization and decarbonization. Um, but maybe a better way to ask that question is, how is or why is architecture a good lens through which to sort of, you know, uh, tackle this, th these political questions that you're talking about? Yeah, it's a really good, good question. And I think you can answer that in, in two different ways. Um, so one, if you understand architecture as uh, a certain structure of knowledge that is, that is very uh, attentive and conscious to uh, space in relationship to social organization and material construction technologies, etc. Um, you know, that knowledge um, and those skills that come with learning architecture can be deployed in all kinds of ways because that, that knowledge is socially useful and relevant beyond mm -hmm. buildings. So, for example, you know, the, 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 the most obvious example is uh, the work that forensic architecture do, which is an right. organization that I worked with for, for, for right. some time. And, you know, they take architectural knowledge and they deploy it in investigations around human rights violations. So that's one answer. So you can just take the, the knowledge and skills yeah. that you learn and you can make them do other things in the world. Um, but then for, let's say if we, if we think about architecture in terms of buildings and, and, and construction, then um, I think one thing that became extremely interesting to me and um, is, is really, uh, I guess what I've been working on in the last few years is the way non-Western societies um, structure their environment mm. um, and in a sense embody alternative sets of relationships between themselves and the world around them. Uh, so if we go, if we wind back to what I said at the beginning, which is that, you know, colonization, it kind of extinguishes these alternative worldviews okay. and replaces them with a worldview that treats everything as a resource. Uh, you know, if we turn to, you know, various land rights struggles, uh, social struggles around the world led by indigenous groups, um, we have so much to learn because we can also see in those, in each one of those contexts, um, a set of alternative values being deployed. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and, and, and for me, uh, I think those, those moments are incredibly precious. And, and what's interesting about them is that they also confront, they, they, it's been very confrontational because also what you, what we, the kinds of things we expect to refer to when we say the word architecture <laughs> might not always look like buildings. Right. Um, but they might do the same kind of work. Yeah, they might organize yeah. people socially. Um, they might, you know, create ways of allocating resources that are yeah. equitable. Um, they might shelter people, or they might organize their passage through a landscape. You know, all of the things that we we kind of understand architecture, or, you know, urbanism to do um, apply in a different context, but just look very different. And, and I think for me that that provide that that is a, a huge like, epistemological provocation to us. Yeah. And I think when I go back and and and, and think about my own architectural education and how um, incredibly Eurocentric or Western centric it was. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I, I realize that there's a vast realm of human experience that's been left out of canonical understandings of what is architecture and what's not. <laughs> and I think that's really exciting. Uh, it's, it's tragic, but it's also, it's an exciting moment because it, actually there's, it just points to the fact there's a ton of work to do to start to think through what the implications are for, for, for us. Yeah, I mean, part of the project then becomes decolonizing what we mean by <laughs> by architecture itself. Yeah. I've heard, and I've heard you talk about um, sort of this, uh, I don't know if you want to call it sort of a history or an understanding of architecture that looks as architecture as building and specifically as shelters and dwellings. Yeah. Um, and that that sort of presupposes what we mean when we say architecture. Can you <laughs> this is a big question. Can you sort of briefly talk about this idea of shelter and dwelling and how this maybe relates to a, uh, whether that's like a colonized or a limited understanding of what architecture is or what architecture can be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the really short version of it is that I think that the really the, the most fundamental presupposition about a Western conception of architecture is that its role is to shelter us. Um, but implied in that in that presupposition is two things. One is that the world out there is some kind of threat. It's dangerous. And the second thing is that we are somehow vulnerable mm. and therefore subject to predation, right. bad weather, right. what have you. And architecture kind of intervenes, yeah, to insulate us. Um, but, but in that presupposition is a relationship between the organism and the environment um, that isn't universally held by different societies. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that's just, you know, interesting. Um, you know, your house, it might be more relevant to say that the roof space in your house is, um, is, is, a, is a resting place of gods. <laughs> um, or that, or that right. your garden, your garden or the landscape around your house is the resting place of your ancestors right. um, than it is to say that it's your, you know, uh, I don't know, front lawn or the right, right. Does, does the ventilation, you know, yeah. because, because then suddenly, you, you know, if, if, if the land, if the land around you is, um, or, or, or the building materials of your house have a direct connection to your ancestors, then your relationship to your environment is not protection from a threat. It's uh, it's care, mm. yeah. And so suddenly, you start to flip in 180 degrees um, the relationship that's presumed between the between the person and, and 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 their environment. And there are kind of numerous examples of that that I've gone into in different lectures. But um, but that's really the the gist of the argument. There was an interview. I read an interview that you did a while ago, um, and you were you know sort of talking about about your sort of research project, all the things that we're talking about today. And the, the, the interviewer asked you <laughs> sort of pointedly, like, why do you think architecture can solve these problems? And your response to that, uh, I have not been able to stop thinking about uh, when I read that. You said, I don't think architecture is capable of solving anything, but it is an excellent platform to pose problems. Yeah, And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Um, and I think we're starting to get to that a little bit, but how do we sort of shift from architecture as building, architecture yeah. as problem solving, to yeah. architecture as set of ideas, set of principles, set of 
you know, platforms to pose these problems as opposed to solve them. I mean, so, so this is a kind of methodological given in my work, um, which is to think really precisely about how a problem comes to us. Yeah. Mm. But like mm. we think problems are, are kind of just out there. And as, as students or as practicing architects, we kind of take them on board, like they're kind of ready-made. Um, but, but I think the way that they've come to us is always structured by certain kinds of historical and political forces. Mm. Um, so you could think about something like homelessness. Right. And you would see that some people would pose that problem in terms of a shortfall of housing construction, which might be one way of posing the problem and it would lead to certain kinds of responses. Um, another way of posing the problem would be to talk about the commodification of housing and the fact that, well, actually we have um, plenty of houses that just happen to be empty because they're used as investment vehicles. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You know, so 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 I'm always really interested and in, and in, in kind of kind of turning the problem around in my head and working out how many different ways can I come at it. And I think architecture is really um, a, a kind of wonderful way of um, giving us the skills to do that. And, I, and so, and so, I, so I think um, there's an enormous amount of political power in posing a problem in a new and persuasive way because mm. problems act have a kind of gravitational force field. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you can think about the way um, kind of sustainability as a certain formulation of, of, of a kind of the, the, the climate crisis um, for so long exerted so much power on, the, on our field and made us think about the problem in a certain kind of way. Um, but if someone comes and says, actually, the problem is about ecology, right. um, then suddenly right. uh, all of the methods and approaches need to be you know, reappraised and reorganized because the problem's formulated in a completely different way. And when someone says to you, actually, you know, ecology just doesn't mean the natural world, it also means your mental health and your well-being, then suddenly right. <laughs> you're, you're kind of turning it around. And so that kind of reformulation of the problem, I think, is 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 a very powerful political thing that we can do. And so you, can, you can put it in the world and start to organize a field. I, I love that. Um, I, there's so much about that that I feel like we could could talk about. And, you know, so much of your work, you've been so involved in architecture education for most of your, your career. You're the dean of the School of Architecture at the Royal College of Art, which we'll talk about more specifically in a bit. But I, I'm interested in sort of how you think about this project of decolonizing architecture, of change, of expanding our definitions of what architecture and, and you know maybe for our purposes we could say architecture and and design yeah. um how how does that actually change how we talk about it in the classroom or how we structure a curriculum or how how we give students the tools to craft their own redefinitions or you know uh be participants in this this decolonization project um well first of all you know on graduation i I worked for uh, someone in Australia called Richard Goodwin. He's a really extraordinary um, artist trained as an architect, working across different scales from, you know, we were working on freeway infrastructure um, and roads, mm. working on buildings, um, but he also had an artistic practice and was doing in public installation work, showing in galleries, 
And and what was really for me uh, wonderful about that experience, besides being in the kind of extraordinary education and him being a really wonderful mentor, um, we didn't spend much time thinking about like where the disciplinary boundaries of architecture stopped, <laughs> right. and you know something like art practice might start. It was always quite right. fuzzy, and it felt comfortable, and there wasn't a lot of guilt associated with it. <laughs> right. Just, you know, the work went where it needed to go. And I think that was a really, um, the kind of spirit of that um, meant that the, the work was evolving out of, um, you know, a, a kind of very serious and rigorous practice. And it's something that I think I was just talking to my colleagues about the other day. And so so if you, if and maybe this is a kind of lead into the Royal College of Art. So if, if you're an artist and you come to a master's program to study fine arts you know the idea that you have a practice will be taken really seriously mm. yeah mm-hmm. and 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 you're and the time that you're there um you know it was spent trying to cultivate and nurture that practice yeah um and i realized that that we have that same ethos in the school of architecture except we we we, we direct it towards architecture students that is to say that when they come in we take seriously the idea that they already have a practice. Yeah, mm. um, they've just finished an undergraduate degree in architecture or, or another field. Um, they might be quite confused about what they're doing, but we <laughs> dignify their experiences in the world yeah. and say they're important. And we take the idea that they have a practice seriously, and we try to nurture it. So there's something of the ethos of a kind of fine arts disposition towards education. That's interesting. That applied yeah. to um, an architectural context, which I think is really unique. Yeah, and so and so I again, sorry to kind of quote back another thing that you said in an interview, but you I you said something that uh, in an interview a couple of years ago that you weren't interested in policing distinctions, uh, you know, between disciplines. And I think that's something that you and I have in common. We're sort of interested in these these expanded yeah. definitions, and I'm wondering how you think about that within a larger institution. You're the Dean of the School of Architecture. Um, and that comes with a lot of baggage and, and there are other departments that you have to sort of interface with. How do you sort of think about sort of maintaining a, and maybe maybe I'm even asking this question in the wrong way, but like maintaining a core or maintaining some sort of yeah. definition, but also being aware that it is blurry and amorphous. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I, think, I think it's really important to hold those two things together. Um, so for example, you know, what I, what I described before in terms of the applicability of architectural architecture as a structure of knowledge outside of building, mm-hmm. um, you know, in order to produce that, uh, that knowledge, you need a really serious engagement with the history of the discipline right, and, right. and, and, and with building and with construction and so those skills don't come out of any uh, out of nowhere. And so, um, and so it's less about moving away from you know commitments that we have to you know what contemporary architectural practice should look like, which we certainly we have those commitments. And they might not be the same as other people's commitments. We have those commitments, um, but it's less guilt-ridden about pulling people in from from the perimeters of those interests back into the center you know yeah yeah Um, because we see those things as as starting points as entry points and 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 i think we're trying to continually dignify our students own experiences 
um, such that they can also flourish as they come into contact with all of the various, you know, opportunities that, that, that exist in the RCA. I mean, one, one really incredible thing about the Royal College of Art is it's also kind of naturally interdisciplinary as a context. Mm, yeah. So having taught at other institutions where there are long-standing intergenerational debates around right. what, what you should or shouldn't do or what you should or shouldn't read, um, I think that the really great thing about the RCA is we, we don't really... Um, feel those same kinds of pressures. So as a dean, um, it's never really been difficult. I think we have a more, a more, a more complex and nuanced problem, you know, so we have a, um, an interior design program mm -hmm. and we have an architecture program, which is the professionally accredited program. There's a city design program. So it's a more urban scale right. and there's an environmental architecture program, which is something that we developed, um, as a contemporary response to everything I was talking about at the beginning around resource extraction. So right, it's, right. it's landscape architecture that's thinking about um, uh, land rights struggles, uh, territorial scale oh, of, 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 of design, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then the, and the, the, the interesting thing that we have is there's so much cross-fertilization between all of those different scales and practices yeah. um, that oftentimes it's... <laughs> Not clear <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> overlap, and that's, so which is which is a nice thing, but it's also uh, it makes us continually think about what makes them distinct from each other as well. Do students come in into your program with that knowledge that that you as an institution are thinking about architecture this way? And I'm and I'm I'll I'll sort of put my cards on the table here and I've asked this question to many people on the show mm. <laughs> over, over the years. You know, I'm I when I teach undergrads, I, you know, I'm I'm always sort of teaching in this with these expanded modes, these blurry definitions. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had a student say, like, I want to do this for a project, but I'm not sure if it's graphic design. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I like if you're doing it, it is. <laughs> like if yeah, it's if yeah. it's we're doing it this path. Um yeah. And some yeah. of that is the difference between an undergraduate student and a graduate student and pressures of getting a job and thinking oh. about, you know, I have to get work after this. And so if I make this weird short film, is that like, is that too weird? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm wondering if sort of how, I don't know, how you sort of prepare, how, how students are, how aware of students of this way of thinking are they going in or are there students who are thinking like, I just want to, I do just want to build buildings. I do just want to make shelters, you know, yeah. how do you, um, how do you sort of talk about that tension? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the answer is that, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, now after I've been Dean for nine years and so, um, people come to the school, uh, for a specific reason mm. and, and they come because they want to study architecture in this interdisciplinary context alongside artists and designers and, you know, um, and graphic designers and fashion designers and sculptors and photographers, etc. And so they've already given themselves permission to have a kind of proximity to the fine arts right. line in a broader sense, which is great. And, and I think that's fantastic for us. Um, but there's a ton of people that come that um, want to pursue um, architecture as building, as it's known. They want to pursue interior design as building. Or, mm -hmm. or design as a kind of, you know, um, master planning project. And it's really important that, that, that space exists for those practices. Right. And a large part of the school is people who 
come at things in, in that way. And it's actually, I don't think we've ever been in a position of thinking it's one or the other. It's actually the relationship between um, someone who wants to produce textile, a textile as their graduating project in, in a, uh, an architecture degree, which has happened in the past, or wants to work in glass blowing as the model, um, it's, you can do that. Yeah. But there are also people producing, you know, um, the, you know what, what might look like a conventional documentation package for a building. So it, it's, a, it's a mix. Yeah, I mean, even hearing you say that, it's almost it, it in and of itself is a sort of decolonizing project also. And you use the phrase about sort of like the people operating at the perimeters, bringing them into the center. Yeah. And what I'm sort of hearing you say is that there actually really isn't a center. It's just all yeah. of these things are sort of, you know, one doesn't take precedence over the other. There's not like yeah. a traditional practice and experimental practice or whatever. It's they're all they're all valid in their own ways. Exactly. And, and you know, a, a large part of that has been our response uh, as, as faculty to the students that are coming in, you know, and mm -hmm. so we've been working really hard to diversify the faculty. Uh, so to diversify the faculty and student intake. Um, and when you have students that come in with different life experiences, right, right. Um, you also just, you, you can't, you know, I think it's just it's it's not right to tell them that their life experiences are right. Totally, yeah. In this context, um, actually, when someone comes to you with different life experiences, and that could be because of their cultural background, it could be because of their class background, or you know, any other reason, um, then it, we have to take if we're taking their practice seriously, then we have to take that experience. And so we need we need to be able to respond to them and to work mm -hmm. out you know what they've brought into the institution and to use that as the starting point. And we've and we've and we're not always very good at doing that. Right. Good thing to do, and yeah. I don't. You know, I think we're much better at it. But you know, it's a kind of work in progress. I mean, you've been in you've been in this position for nine years, like you said, and I'm curious how you think about being a dean, being uh, in a position where you are both. Um, sort of helping set a research agenda, but also acting as an administrator, thinking about, you know, all of these moving parts. How is how is being a dean and running a school of architecture a type of design project? Like, how do you approach that as a designer, as an architect? Yeah, it, it, there's a really long answer to this. <laughs> I'm going to give you the short answer. Okay. Uh, you, you absolutely have to believe in institution, institution building as a project, you know, mm. and... And, and, and you have to see the institution as a design project. Yeah. That is to say everything from, you know, the interpersonal conduct of people to each yeah. other, um, the administrative structures that you have place, the opportunities that people have to surface discomfort or conflict or power relationships that they feel uncomfortable with. Um, you know, how, does the, how do we reflect on ourselves as a school? And how do we, how has that self-reflection become a practice and a critical practice? And how do you do that while at the same time, you know, nurturing colleagues, right. dealing with people's life circumstances as they pass through moments of like confidence and vulnerability? Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, while maintaining all the kind of financial, right. developing, you know, research culture. In, so it's one of the things that's, you know, it's a research-led teaching practice in the school and, and right. research culture is important because 
you know, I've been in so many other institutions where people find themselves in careers that are, you know, it kind of funneling down into a cul-de-sac right. um, and it generates all kinds of, you know, neurosis and anxiety. You know, it's really hard work. It's really the most difficult thing I've ever done. And, it, and because the default position of the institution is kind of um, anxiety and paranoia. You know? <laughs> right. yes. and, and, and so, yeah, yeah totally. You know, we've all worked in universities before. We know, we know that's, that's, yeah. what they, that's what they default to. And, <laughs> right. so, and so the amount of work required to keep them um, uh, kind of open and uh, secure, but also um, kind of vital and dynamic, but without producing precarity and insecurity it's really yeah. really complicated and but it but it's but it's absolutely a design project um but it's one you kind of embody and i think it's also one my colleagues embody as well and, and have really taken off yeah i think that's so it's so well said and it's so true <laughs> it, 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 it is very true and what's interesting to me about that and, and talking about that sort of uh vulnerability and paranoia and precarity um in many ways it sort of goes back to your your first answer about this intersection between decarbonization and decolonization and this mindset of extraction of of um financializing everything about seeing what you can take and i'm wondering how you sort of apply we've been talking about these ideas on the scale of the planet on the scale of the city how does how does that research actually influence how you manage the school how you organize the research culture how you sort of interact with students and and faculty because it's sort of the same it's the same issues just on a smaller scale absolutely uh that's a really 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 uh profoundly important question um and it's, it's also difficult to answer so and i think the us is in a slightly different position to this but but certainly in the uk um that you know Education has become more financialized. Of course, we have mm-hmm. debt issues and student debt. The student debt issue in the US is, is arguably a lot worse than here. Um, but but in the UK, um, the you know your research output is, is the word used to describe it um, is quantified and assessed in a, you know um, a nationwide assessment process. Right. Years and 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 you know your 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 time is subject to different kinds of um, metrics, whether it be, you know, student feedback and, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so, so, you know, education in both the US and the UK and in fact, maybe less so around the world, maybe Australia and Canada as well, um, is more and more subject to things that uh, processes of like counting and assessment and mm-hmm. quantification. Um, and I think that's been really challenging um, for for academics uh, everywhere and, and researchers everywhere, and so I think that you know the 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 approach that we take to it is is really practical. I think we 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 have to fulfil those expectations and 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 um, but also not not see them as the an end in themselves, right? Um, and right. see them as you know a kind of collateral of what we're really trying to do which is create a transformative experience for students and 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 to, and to produce research that has you know meaning in the world and so yeah there's a, there's a really long bureaucratic answer to that yeah. i just trying to well adrian uh, if there's, if there's a, 
if there's any podcast where you can give long bureaucratic oh, answers yeah. about administration, <laughs> you are on it. This is the show for that. <laughs> I've uh, I have a couple questions to wrap up yeah. um, this conversation. I'm interested in what you're thinking about now. What's sort of top of mind for you? What's next for you? Where do you see this research that you're doing going next? Yeah. Um, this, look, I, I think we've just come off um, a really successful few years. I think we were really mm-hmm. um, had an amazing, you know, of course, the, the, the recent Venice Architecture Biennale curated by Leslie Loco, which is really also about these themes that we've yeah. raised today around decarbonization and decolonization. We see like a first generation of alumni um, coming through the school, a first generation of, of faculty coming through the school, participating in that event. And actually, one of the things I'm really interested in now is it is a kind of intergenerational relationship. Yeah. So, so how do those um, how do those that, that new generation of alumni and faculty that are going out to the world doing all these fantastic things? So, you know, there was I don't know twenty twenty two or twenty three people out of the ninety people curated by Leslie were, were from the school. Um, oh wow! Which is a kind of extraordinary. And if someone had told me that. At the beginning of um, my tenure as dean, I, I would have not believed them. So, 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 so this generation is starting to get recognition, and things that were considered really um, uh, on the fringes of the discipline nine years ago when we started, you know, running studios yeah, with indigenous yeah. groups looking at resource extraction, or you know, running a multi-year studio in the Atacama Desert, as my colleague Godfredo Pereira did. Um, uh, you know, working, you know, in, in, in Borneo, um, palm oil plantations, which is what Christina Jaros was doing for a number of years. You know, these things that were actually really not considered part of architectural education. Right. I've seen um, now uh, many, many other institutions really wholeheartedly embrace those kinds of practices. And I think that's really, for me, extremely, extremely exciting. And, and, and my own work... And, and I think my reflection on the institution at that moment is actually, and again, this is part of, and again, it is a way, a kind of response to your question about the institution, which is how do, how do we start to think about this as an intergenerational terms? Yeah. Um, how do we think about this as from a longer term perspective and start to build in some of those practices, not only in the school, but in the wider world, you know, in the profession? Yeah. Um, in the uh, you know the bodies that accredit architecture degrees and programs, um, and 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 I think for me that's the really exciting next phase of all of this, which is a kind of broader formalization and institutionalization of what's happening in the school. Yeah, I mean, you started answering what my follow-up question was going to be, which is sort of where you see architecture and design education going next. If there's sort of other other issues or topics or focus um, that that are on the margins that we need to bring in into the core. Are there others that we haven't talked about that you, you're sort of seeing on the horizon? Yeah, I, mean, I think for me that the, the two um, the two major shifts that have taken place in the last uh, ten years is the incorporation of like insights from Black studies. Mm-hmm. decolonial studies as well into architecture and i think what they've pointed us to is um vast gaps in our knowledge uh, of history so right. also just basic 
you know, historical documentation of, um, you know, non-Western forms of architecture or, you know, the, the role of architecture or space in histories yeah. of social struggles around the world. And actually, I don't, I'm really against the idea that there's like a next thing uh, <laughs> because I think this, this thing's going to take a really long time to work out. You know, and I think, and I, and I think, what what I'm hoping is that you know, next generations of scholars and PhD students and practitioners um, will slowly start to recover all those really important lost histories, and they will start to make us think very differently about yeah. how we um, practice in the present, and hopefully, give us clues around what kind of alternative, you know forms of life and relationships to the world might be possible outside of the domination of extraction you know yeah. and, and and for me that's that's there is no other project that's the project i love that i think i mean next thing was maybe not the right it was more like what else are on those margins what else is on that yeah. that's perimeter i think that's exactly right yeah and um, I, think, I think i really feel like we've just we're just literally scratching the surface with yes yeah. yes good uh good uh name of the show reference there. yes <laughs> Completely unintentional, but yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> you sent me the check. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way to to wrap up. So I'm going to ask you the last question, actually, mm. that I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. What I'm reading? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm reading The Wretched of the Earth. Oh. Yeah. Adrian, I enjoyed this conversation so much. I really admire what you're doing. Um, and, and really appreciate the, the generosity of this conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And also, um, thank you for being such a um, wonderful interlocutor. I really, really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Adrian LaHood. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast, and you can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>